We are in Luke chapter 2. And for the next two weeks, we are going to go through a very familiar Christmas account, a Christmas story, um, and, and walk through uh, today, verses se- 1 through 7, and then next week, verses uh, 8 to 21. I love the Christmas season, though, and I hope you do, and, and if you are in the nativity or got to see it, hopefully that uh, started even more preparing your heart uh, for remembering uh, Emmanuel, God with us coming. Uh, before we get into our text this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, understandably, much happening, much preparation, as Nate had mentioned, uh, for your return, Lord, that we have a mission to spread and to share the gospel, the good news of great joy that is for all the people. And we want to be faithful in doing that. And, and oftentimes that, uh, that mission and being faithful to that mission means that uh, physically we are fatigued and weary. Um, we, are, we are not beyond that. And so give us strength even today uh, to listen well, uh, for myself to, to speak well, to make your word clear Strip me of uh, any pride um, and self, and that it would just simply be uh, the word of God that is conveyed here today, not my own wisdom and words. Um, Lord, for those that are teaching our kids as well, give them grace, give them uh, clarity to, to present the truth uh, to that age group, um, uh, all, all the way down, Lord, we are, we are so thankful that uh, you have called us out as your people and uh, have called us to gather uh, at least weekly to worship, to be refreshed, to be encouraged, to be challenged uh, and convicted until the day that you return the second time uh, to make all things new. We look forward to that day. And give us strength now uh, here in our time of worship during the sermon Uh, We love you, we praise you for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have a Christmas classic that I want to uh, remind us of this morning. The the Christmas classic movie, The Santa Claus. How many watch that movie? Know what movie I'm talking about? Tim Allen, okay? Yeah, that is on our family, like, yearly list. Somehow it made it onto the list. Um, and if you, if you don't know that movie, I don't even really like Santa Claus, but, but I, I like that movie. I find myself drawn to it. But towards the beginning of that movie, you have Scott Calvin, uh, who is the main character in the story, and his son Charlie there, and, and, and before he becomes Santa Claus, um, Charlie, his son, is asking him questions about Santa Claus, asking him how certain things work, how do the reindeer fly, and how, how does Santa come to a house that, if there's no chimney, and he's making up answers as he's going, and then he gets to the point where he, 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 he tells his son, Charlie, uh, Charlie, sometimes when you believe in something, you just believe it. And what he's saying is, I don't really have any answers to your questions, but just believe it. And really at the heart of his son's questions is this desire to know truth. Because none of us want to believe things that are untrue. We want to know what is true 
in, in, in regards to a number of things. So we turn on any given news channel and we're bombarded with fake news, right? How, how do I know what to believe about what I'm seeing? Are these details accurate? And it bothers us because we want to know truth. And our quest, our quest for truth crosses into the religious realm as well. And so here at, at Covington Baptist Church, we are a Christian church and Christianity claims to be a religion of truth. Truth that's found in the Bible, God's word, which is why we read from the scriptures and we speak a sermon from the scriptures because this book or the book that you hold in your hand, if, if you're using uh, that uh, Bible in front of you, again, I'm sorry about that, page 857, but this is the book from which we draw our truth from. This is the book that Christianity is based on. And at the, the, the center of the Christian faith uh, is this person of Jesus Christ. Now the Bible's often attacked, and Jesus is often the, the, the center of those attacks. So his virgin birth, his miracles, his death and resurrection are often attacked by those who would seek to discredit Christianity and say that it is untrue. And the reason that Jesus is the one that is attacked, because if, if Jesus fails, if he falls and is dispelled as not being true, then all of Christianity falls and fails as well. He, he is the heart of the Christian faith. And so that being the case, the virgin birth of Jesus is more than a feel-good story in December. It's more than a story that is given to us by the, the, the Bible authors so that we could uh, reenact it in a play. In the Christmas story, we either have a story that is true and supports the rest of the claims of Jesus' life and ministry, or a story that is fake and that really washes away the promises of God and the foundation of our salvation as believers. And I would imagine in a room of this size, and I don't know every person here, just looking around the room, and I don't know your hearts especially, but there are some here today, I would imagine, that, that, that believe in Jesus, that reject him, or you're still trying to figure out what this whole Christianity thing even is. Is this worth believing? Is there any truth here? Or should I look for truth elsewhere? Well, thankfully, thankfully, Luke gives us a better answer to our questions than Scott Calvin gave to his son. Luke, in his gospel, we call this Luke because at the beginning of the book, in, in verse 1, uh, Luke lays, uh, lays out for us why he is writing. He gives us an accurate record of Jesus' life and ministry, beginning with his birth, He's writing in, in chapter 1, verse 3, he's writing to this man named uh, Theophilus. He says, I'm writing to you, uh, it seems good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Perhaps Theophilus is some sort of ruler, which is why he refers to him as most excellent. But he's writing a story that very well could have been cross-referenced in that day for its accuracy. So Luke's not in a position to, to make things up. 
to, to just kind of slip in some fake news and, and a fake story about Jesus' life and ministry because Theophilus is going to be able to, to cross-reference the things that he's hearing and he's reading from Luke and, and whatever other Gentiles and believers and non-believers would end up reading this letter as well, they would be able to do the same thing. But Luke reveals his purpose of his book, of his uh, biography of the life of Christ in, in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, I'm writing this that you may have certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke has investigated these events. He's using information from eyewitnesses and from other sources of his time. And he's now writing his gospel, this this biography of Jesus as a historian. And so wherever your beliefs are about God this morning, I would simply invite you to examine the credibility of Luke and the other uh, authors of Scripture. Because I, what, you, what I think you'll find is that the credibility of Jesus' birth upholds the Christian faith and really provides an accurate record of truth that we can confidently place our trust in. So Luke here is not just telling us that a man named Jesus was born. He's telling us that a God-man named Jesus was born. Now, miraculous births, they took place before, going going all the way back to Abraham, okay? Um, But Luke even uh, shares one of those stories in chapter 1. And again, we don't have time to read all 80 verses of of chapter 1 here in Luke, but he tells the story of John the Baptist being born to elderly parents. That was a, a, a miracle birth. But you get to chapter 2, and the birth of Jesus is different. It's different because Jesus is not born to super old parents, the elderly. He's, he's actually, it's, it's quite the opposite. The average age for a girl to be betrothed or engaged to be married was 12 to 14. So we're most likely talking about a teenage girl in in Mary, and there's nothing miraculous about a teenage girl being pregnant and carrying a child. That's not a miraculous thing. What is miraculous, and what Luke brings in to this story, is that there is no earthly father. Mary is still a virgin, no sexual relations. Now, a story like that has never been told. And you can almost hear Theophilus asking those questions like uh, Scott Calvin's son, Charlie, in in that movie. Well, well, how is it possible for God to be born? And and why did Joseph still marry her if if she was pregnant with, with, with child from someone else? You can almost hear these questions that Theophilus has And so, really, in Luke chapter 2, all the way through beginning, the details of the story are given to reaffirm the truth of this story so that Theophilus can have confidence in what he has been taught. And, by extension, that we can have confidence in what we have been taught. And so, over the next two weeks, we're going to look at the details of this story. Again, Breaking it up, verses 1 to 7 this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' birth as human. And and next week, verses 8 to 21, Jesus' birth as deity, because Jesus came as fully human, but also fully God. So Jesus' birth as human. 
And we must, we must certainly understand that Jesus is God this morning. But we'll, we'll look at that and flush that out more so next week. But equally true for us to understand is that Jesus is fully human. He breathed air. He ate food. He, he skinned his knees. He got sick. He was carried for nine months or for 40 weeks, however you want to uh, uh, map that out. And he's delivered by natural birth. Physically, he was human. Emotionally, he was human. He experienced sorrow. He cried. He was lonely. He was angry. He was loved. And he loved. Jesus is as human as you and me. So Jesus, as we, as we think about the humanity of Christ, we're going to look at it in three, in three points. Jesus was birthed into human history. He had a human ancestry. And he came through human means or circumstances. He was birthed in a human setting. So jumping into our text here, in verses 1 through 3, what, we're, what we see is that Jesus is, is birthed into human history. You have uh, in our first three verses, let me just quickly read through them again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. What we're given in this, these details from Luke is really helpful date markers. We have human rulers. So within human history, we have human rulers that Luke details out for us. In, in verses 1, we're told that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. This is the Roman ruler Octavian who ruled from uh, 27 BC to AD 14. Okay? And it's really under his rule that the Roman Empire flourished. There, there was... Uh, there, all the infighting and the civil wars as Rome started to conquer all the regions surrounding it. But under Caesar Augustus, he began to put things in order. And the Roman Empire started to stabilize and settle down and really flourish. And I, I just have a, a quick one-minute video to kind of see the expansion of the Roman Empire up to the time of Christ. You can see there how Rome's kingdom, its empire, had just expanded through the years until you get to that 27 BC uh, where Caesar Augustus 
it steps onto the scene and he starts to, starts to stabilize the whole empire. And part of that would be ordering a census to take place. This is that registration that Luke talks about. For, for tax purposes, uh, some, some verges, versions might read uh, the whole world should be taxed. And that would certainly be part of the census. Okay? And, and any nation wants to know who's in their land. So a registration is ordered, and Luke tells us this is the first registration when Quirinius uh, is governor in Syria. If you have a King James Version, it might, it might read Cyrenius. It's the same person. Uh, they, just, they, they just Latinized the word, uh, but, but we're talking about the same person here. Um, and, and we know from Acts 5.37 that there is a second census that is Mentioned. So Luke's account is falling into order. It's helping us understand the, the dates of uh, when Jesus is being born and what is all happening. And so some of these namings of these rulers, we think, okay, that's nice. Caesar Augustus and Quirinius. And in, in chapter one, he mentions Herod. Um, but it's really setting us up to help us understand that there's a historical framework here. There is, uh, it's giving us an understanding of the world uh, at this time. And so when you take all these details into account about who these rulers are and all the details given in chapter one about John's conception and birth and the priestly schedule, and you have Herod the Great, uh, who is the Herod that Matthew tells us seeks to kill Jesus at one point. Um, he, he dies in 4 BC. So when you take all of these these dates and these rulers into, into context, Jesus is most likely born about 6 BC in a, in a real historical world, a historical human setting. And we also see this in, the, in just the human cities, these locations that are mentioned. Uh, Caesar issues this decree in verse 1, and he says, look, all the world is to be registered. This is not, uh, this is the Roman Empire world. That, that's what Luke is referring to. So all those areas in red that you saw, all those areas, those people are supposed to go back to their hometowns, where they're from, and, and be registered. And so Luke tells us at the end of verse number 4 that uh, Joseph and Mary, they are going to the human city of Bethlehem, town of Bethlehem, because they are of the house and lineage of David. Uh, I have another helpful, I think maybe helpful map up here for you. Uh, so we're in the Judean region of the Roman Empire, which you have the Mediterranean Sea right there, and, and right to the east of that, you see yellow Syria, if you can make that out, and then right below that, you have Judea. So Rome, Rome's empire had expanded, and it's broken up into all different regions, much like we would have states uh, here in our country today. So Joseph and Mary are living in Galilee in the town of Nazareth. They're going to be traveling to Bethlehem, which is located in the Judea region, which Herod is the king over that region. Caesar Augustus, king over the whole empire, ruler over everything. Um, and so they're going to be traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So you have, you have human history, human cities, uh, humanity that Jesus is birthed into. And then lastly, we want to look at uh, the human culture here that Jesus is birthed into. Rome is flourishing. 
under Caesar Augustus. Peace and prosperity really mark his rule. Have you ever heard of the Pax Romana? Ever heard that? The peace of Rome. This is started under Caesar Augustus, and it's going to be a 200-year period of peace in Rome. So people are traveling freely throughout the empire. The wars have stopped. Rome is one unified nation all together. You have Jews and Greeks and Romans all living among each other. They're learning each other's cultures, realizing that they, hey, we have a lot more common as human beings than we thought we did, trading some of those ideas. So you have this multicultural, multi-ethnic empire with Greeks spreading throughout the, the empire, clusters of Jews gra- gathering in every major city. This is the dispersion that James writes about. They're, they're scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And people are being united under one government, under one language. So the Greek language is going to be the the primary language all throughout the Roman Empire, which is super helpful when you want to write New Testament letters and spread them all around to the churches in the Roman Empire. This is how the New Testament came to be. You also have the, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible being translated into Greek, which was the Bible that Jesus and his disciples would have used most often. And so you have all of this unification happening And this freedom of travel through the Roman infrastructure that would make it very easy to to transport goods with their ships and their roads and and all those things, but also trading of beliefs. And, And what began to emerge is this religious pluralism. The Rome granted religious tolerance to a lot of different people groups. Okay, for the most part, you know, the Jews could practice what they could practice and Christianity kind of fell under that Jewish category. You have schools of learning popping up, philosophy, religious institutions, theological institutions are started. Um, So there is a huge open-mindedness among the citizens about what they could believe and and these these beliefs are being traded and being spread all around. Um, So you, you think about the Roman Empire, we're talking about a human history Jesus is dropped into this. this. This empire is not without threats because, remember, Herod tries to kill Jesus as an infant somewhere in there. But the Roman Empire under Augustus was about as stable as an empire that you would find and really an ideal setting for a Messiah to be born. And Luke's historical record that he details through these cities, these human cities, these rulers, all the culture that's taking place, it's so precise that it's really hard to dispute his accounts. Jesus is born into a very real human history. And that continues to be verified the more that we find archaeological things, even in our culture today. This is verified more and more. But I think what's even more fascinating about the birth of Jesus, is that it comes exactly when God desires it to. The rise of the Roman Empire, Augustus's ascension to ruler, his issuing of a, of a, of a registration, all of these things that, that, that are going to take Joseph back to Bethlehem, the whole scene was no accident. God was ordering this, 
this human culture to unfold in this way for precisely the time that a Messiah would be born. One commentator writes, although at a superficial glance the Roman Empire may seem the greatest of enemies of early Christianity, and at times it is a bitter persecutor, yet in many ways it is the grandest preparation and in some ways the best ally of Christianity. Since Genesis chapter 3 and the curse on Satan, Satan has been fighting his predicted destiny. Fighting against what God had told him would unfold, that someone would come and crush his head and defeat him once for all. Satan has tried to eradicate the Jewish people all through the years, hoping to stop Jesus from being born. So to see the sovereign power of God in ordering human history to precisely this moment demonstrates to us that that God has superior strength over Satan. He is going to overcome. His plan is going to unfold. God is on the winning side and Satan is powerless to stop it. Jesus came into this world, a human world with human rulers in man-made cities in a human culture and God doesn't seal, shield Jesus from humanity at all. He's ushered right into it, providentially, at the perfect time. But it's important to understand that Jesus isn't just human because things around him are human. And the world he's placed into is human. But number two, he is distinctly human because of his own ancestry. So yes, Jesus is birthed into human history, but Jesus has a human ancestry, is what Luke tells us in verses 4 to 5. Joseph goes up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Several years ago, me and Val went to Ellis Island, and we were looking up records of our family who had immigrated to the U.S. And it was kind of a little bit tricky because the records weren't as accurate as you would like them to be. Depending on where they left in Europe and, where, and who was, uh, what ship they got on and all of those things, the names, the birth dates, the ages might have been wrong. They might have been incorrect. Um, and so you're, you're, you're trying to, to figure some of those out. We did, find, we did manage to find a few names. Um, and it was kind of neat seeing that connection and thinking, hey, this is my ancestry. I think for most Americans, that's kind of what we think about ancestry. Hey, that's kind of neat, right? But for the Jewish people, the Jewish world, ancestry is extremely important. Accurate records are kept, which is why Luke is able to say, hey, here is the genealogy of Joseph, um, and and he spells that out even more so in chapter 3. But this is how each person knows where to go when, adjust, when Augustus calls for a census. They have an accurate record of their genealogy, of their ancestry. Each family, Luke tells us, is going back to his own town, the place where their family was from. And so here in America, we do a census, right? Every 10 years in the U.S. It's coming up, actually, April 1st, 2020, next census. Uh, you, can, you can go online and there's a countdown even for that. If that's exciting to you. 
But we can fill out a form online. We send it in. Someone stops by our door. We try to ignore them until they go away. But that, that's, that's how we take a census, okay? But picture what it would be like if we, we had to all travel back to where our ancestors were from, our hometowns, so to speak. That's like the holiday travel of today. The, the, the highways are busy, there's traffic, you go to the rest stop, the, the line's long, the bathroom line's long, then you don't want to use it once you get in there. It's, it's just travel, people are traveling. And what would be the common thing? I'm going to stay with my relatives once I get there. Okay? This is the scene that's unfolding here with Mary and Joseph. Hustle and bustle. And so Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph, again, as I mentioned, currently living in Nazareth, they're going to the region of uh, Galilee, to the town of Bethlehem. So here, I got a map for us again. Got a lot of maps today. Sorry. A lot of history here. Nazareth, up there. They're going to make a 90-mile journey down all the way to Bethlehem. 90 miles. Now, for some of us today, that takes about an hour on the highway, right? For going 90. <laughs> In those days, about four to six days travel for them to get to Nazareth, to Bethlehem. And the reason, Luke tells us, we're traveling to Bethlehem, again, is Joseph is from the ancestral line of King David. Mary is actually, as well, when you read the account of Matthew. Uh, but Bethlehem was where David was born, 1 Samuel 16. Jesus is going to be born then into a human family line, affirming once again Jesus is coming as a human being. And so an ancestral line that Luke is talking about, it traces the history of humanity all, all the way back through a particular family line. And in Joseph's line, again, Luke chapter 3 gives us the whole genealogy Luke 3.31, David's right there in in the middle of that. Um, David is the prominent figure in Joseph's line. So he's returning to Bethlehem. And David is prominent because in Jewish culture, he's one of the best kings that Israel has ever known. Through David, Israel has been blessed. And so God also, though, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, gives David a very special promise. And and you've probably heard this, but I want to highlight a couple words here. Uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, you see behind me, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, notice the underlined words, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. A king was promised to David that would come from his own flesh and blood. And his kingdom would endure forever. And so Jesus being born into David's lineage means that Jesus can rightfully fulfill the promise to David. His own flesh and blood. And he can rightfully be the king of Israel. So God doesn't just drop Jesus into a world out of context. And say, okay, let's just, let's just, however it happens, let's just get this going. Jesus came into a human world and he came through the ancestral line of mankind. He is part of the human race. 
And so the humanity of Jesus is seen in his human ancestry. Number three, and we'll work through the details of verses six to seven here. Jesus is birthed into human history. He had a human ancestry. Uh, and, and as well, he came in a human setting. And, and what I mean by this is it's just human means and circumstances. There's nothing, nothing special about these events that have unfolded. They're just what you and I could have gone through. Um, and I didn't know a better way to put it, so I just put human setting, okay? Um, in verses, verses 5 to 7 here, uh, they are going to be registered. He's, Joseph is regi- to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 5 tells us Mary is going to join Joseph on this trip. They're, though they aren't officially married, they're betrothed, and you probably hear that word and think, what does that word mean? And it's more than engagement, okay? Our, our culture might use the word engagement, like you're, you're pledged to be married. It's, it's a little bit more than that. They are, they are legally married, but they're not living together. It's a legally binding contract, which is why Matthew 1.19, he tells us, Joseph hears this news of Mary's pregnancy and he, know, he knows, I'm not the father of this baby. And what does he want to do? He wants to put her away with a bill of divorce. A, a legally binding contract is between the two and there needs to be a legal contract to separate the two. So this is why Mary accompanies Joseph on this because their betrothal is, is binding but yet it's kind of like they're not quite living together. But for registration purposes, their marriage is inevitable, and so they are going to be registered together. But there's something unusual about this betrothed couple. The woman is already pregnant. And we know from Matthew, again, Matthew, uh, account of the Christmas story, Matthew 1.25, they, ha- they did not have sexual relations yet, but she was definitely pregnant. We read here, at the end of verse 5, who was with child. The old, old King James translation says, great with child. The, the idea of this word is that she's noticeably pregnant. So she's at least past the first trimester, is what we know at this point. And spoiler alert, okay, um, I don't know if talking through this may, may upset or shock some of you, but uh, we just want to look at the accurate details that Luke gives us, okay? And some of that may, may not quite line up with some of the, the traditional nativity scenery that we have come to know. Um, what this text doesn't say, doesn't say she was riding a donkey. She may have been. She may not have been. Doesn't say. Um... And it, doesn't also, it also doesn't say that she's in her 39th week of childbearing and she arrives in Bethlehem just in time to have the baby. But what does verse 6 tell us? They, they make this journey, verse 6, and while they were there. So at some point, 
while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. So we're really only told that the birth took place while they were in Bethlehem. We don't know how long she waited. Nothing in Luke's account speaks of an urgency of delivery, just that she did deliver this baby. And, and personally, I think they're, they're there for probably several, several weeks, if not months, um, as it seems very unlikely that they would travel that extremely late in the pregnancy, no, knowing what could unfold on a four to six day journey. But one thing is clear, and this is what all really we need to come away with. Jesus is literally in the womb of Mary, a real baby, a human baby in the womb, who then Mary gives birth to in verse number seven, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Just as any other mom would do, in pain, Mary delivers Jesus, her firstborn. I love Christmas carols. You know, the away in a manger, the one verse, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I don't know how accurate that is. I think it's a nice thought, but Jesus was a real baby, and I'm sure he, had, I'm sure he cried as he was birthed, as all babies do, because who wants to come into this world? Let me stay in my mom's womb. But she gives birth, and Luke tells us, to her firstborn son. Understand now that all firstborn Jewish males are set aside to the Lord. Going back to Exodus 13, right after the deliverance of Egypt, God says, look, all those that would come from the womb as the firstborn set aside to me. This is this is true of Jesus. So Jesus, in accordance with the command of God to the Jewish people in Exodus chapter 13, is under the same command. And, it, and that's what Luke tells us in verses 22 to 24, which we're not going to get to. But uh, Jesus is under Jewish law, just as any other baby would be under that was born into a Jewish family. He's the firstborn of Mary. And notice what Mary does. She wraps him in swaddling cloths laid him in a manger because there was no room for the, him, them in the inn. Uh, so she wraps him in these swaddling cloths. This is normal practice for mothers and newborns. It demonstrates that even though Mary didn't ask for this pregnancy, she is going to care for this child as a loving mother would care for the child. And she's going to embrace this newborn and care for him. Humanly speaking, Jesus was, at one point, a helpless baby in need of the care of an earthly mom and dad. So then they lay him in a manger because there is no room for them in the inn. Mary and Joseph make the 90-mile journey to Bethlehem. Again, they're, th they're there for probably weeks, if not months. Normal custom we're going to stay with some family members um, that were there. And, and I think that's exactly probably what they did. Because what we don't see in our text or, or in any other accounts is uh, an innkeeper saying that there is no room. Uh, in fact, a closer look at the word, and I don't want to get bogged down, but it, it's helpful, okay, I think, a little bit. Um, the Greek word for in that's used here, katalumadi, Okay, isn't necessarily the word for a motel inn. 
It's actually the word for guest room or upper room. And you say, well, maybe he didn't, maybe Luke didn't have the greatest grammar and he didn't understand the difference between the words, so he just kind of used a generic word in there. Well, let's look at a little more of Luke. Luke chapter 10, verse 34, in the story of the good Samaritan. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he went, uh, then he put the man on his donkey and brought him to an inn, Pandoshian, and took care of him. Verse 35 actually talk, uses the word innkeeper, pandochias. Different word than katalumadi. Then we get to Luke chapter 22. And this is where Jesus tells his disciples to go into the town, prepare for Passover. And he says to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Katalum, kataluma. Same word as in Luke chapter 2. Where may I eat the Passover with my where where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. So it appears Luke knew the difference between the motel inn and the, the upper room, the guest room. So we're getting a little bit clearer picture of the nativity scene, and it's not necessarily the crash scene introduced by St. Francis of Assisi in 1223. So Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem. They're most likely staying with relatives, and the time comes for her to give birth. And you can picture the scene again. You have other family members that have made this trip for the registration that are probably staying there. Cramped quarters. And so she, the time comes for her to give birth. And hey, look, we need a private space for this birth to happen. And so that's exactly what they found. And I have a picture for us of a house in that culture. And I think this is very possibly the real nativity scene in houses in those days. You would have uh, the upper room living quarters, the guest room upstairs, or the sleeping quarters, I should say. Downstairs, you would have a kitchen, maybe a little area for storage. You, you'd, there wasn't like living rooms and, and, and that sort of thing like we have today. Uh, but a place for the animals to, to come in at night, so oftentimes in a colder weather or to be protected from predators, animals would come into the bottom portion of that, and in the morning, they would be shooed out, and it would all be cleaned out, and, and food could be made, and things to go about their day. Very simple housing. So this is, I think, more, more likely what the picture of what Luke is describing here. And I, I, you're probably thinking, but the, they did put him in a manger, right? Okay. Yes, Jesus was placed in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. Probably looks something along these lines. More of a stone structure. Okay. Uh, so despite the engagement, the emotional engagement that we have with this story and this idea that Mary and Joseph arrive in the nick of time only to be shooed away by this grumpy innkeeper, it's not quite how things unfolded. And hopefully, I didn't ruin your Christmas. Um, but the details of this story don't change the significance of what Luke is trying to convey. And I think, I think there's a couple things here we need to consider. One, just kind of a side note, but we do need to examine Scripture in all the things that we believe and not just pass down traditions and, and take traditions 
at face value. But, but number two, even though some of our traditions may have been maybe dispelled or reoriented in our minds, Luke's purpose is clear. Jesus came humbly into a real world with real people and real family and real human conditions and real human solutions to those conditions. I mean, you can picture, okay, what are we going to do? We have this house full of people and and, and she's getting ready to give birth. How are we going to deal with all this? Just like we did last night with the nativity and the rain. Let's bring it all inside and, and figure it out. This is the, the setting. Jesus is in real human circumstances and conditions. Jesus is fully 100% human. I think this is really what Luke is just trying to convey. He's one of us. You say, well, why does this all really matter? I have four points of just, I hope, helpful application here in, in the midst of a lot of facts and history that I gave you. But why does all this matter? Number one, only a human Jesus fulfills God's promises. Promises going all the way back to Adam and Eve. So God's promise to Adam and Eve wasn't just that he would deliver them, but that he would deliver them through one of their own offspring. Humanity is entirely sinful, all of us deserving of God's judgment, but instead of eternal judgment, God promised eternal deliverance, not just for humanity, but through humanity. God is using the very flesh that ushered in sin to one day rid the world of all sin. Same flesh and blood. Jesus became man forever to fulfill the eternal promises of God. That's why his humanity is so crucial. Only a human Jesus fulfills God's promises. Number two, only a human Jesus can identify with us. A human Jesus is someone that can relate to our life struggles that we go through every day. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 make this very clear. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. As a result, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Can I urge you, don't overlook this point that Jesus can identify and relate to us as a human being. This week, I've taken great comfort in this on several occasions already. I mean, the the physical fatigue from the nativity. Jesus knows what physical fatigue is like. I'm sitting in the hospital with, with Isla, our daughter, this week, and you have thoughts going through your minds and worries and concerns. And the thought came to my mind, Jesus knows what I'm feeling. The temptations that have come up this week, he knows what we're going through. And it would be good to remember that, that old Negro spiritual Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrows. Nobody knows but Jesus. 
whether it's a spiritual temptation, a physical pain or suffering, emotional hurt, Jesus has experienced it and he cares about it. Whatever you're facing. Number three, only a human Jesus can atone for human sin. A human Jesus means that we have a rightful substitute who can atone for our sin. Again, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 and verse 17, it says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son, this is Jesus, also became flesh and blood. For only a human being For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, and here's our word atonement, propitiation, same word, for the sins of the people. The word atonement or propitiation is reconciliation. Humanity is separated from holy God because of sin. And as a holy and just God, God must punish sin. But only a human can take this punishment because it's humans that sin. And so either we take that punishment ourselves and are eternally separated from God or we find a sinless human substitute. So if Jesus is not human, there is no reconciliation with God. Jesus' humanity strikes at the core of the gospel message. And without it, we have no good news. Because only a human Jesus can atone for human sin. And then number four, and we'll be finished. Only a human Jesus provides hope for a glorified human body. A human Jesus provides hope that one day this broken body will be resurrected like his human body. At the end of John's gospel, we don't have time to get there, but after Jesus rises again, we are told that Jesus eats food. He offers Thomas to touch him, literally touch his human body. His body was real after the resurrection, but it was a glorified body. And so, brothers and sisters, we're not waiting, waiting to rid ourselves of flesh, but rather to receive a glorified body for eternity, which Paul says is exactly what awaits believers in 1 Corinthians 15. He says the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and this mortal body will put on immortality. Why? Because a human Jesus lived, died, and rose again. So the importance of Jesus' humanity, I mean, simply can't be overstated. And the Christian message is not just a message of religious doctrines and pithy sayings and moral, uh, moral laws to live by. It's a message that's rooted in human history. God is engaged with real people in real places, in real human events, and he became a real human. Christianity is not blind faith or even foolish faith. 
But it's faith that can be verified and that's credible on so many levels. And Luke's record gives us certainty of the things that we have been taught concerning this God, man, Jesus. Let's pray.